0: Today's episode is sponsored by TrueLearn. TrueLearn has smart banks of practice questions for a wide variety of high-stakes examinations. Are you a med student? They have smart banks for Step 1 and 2. Are you a resident in the field of internal medicine, emergency medicine, or anesthesiology? They have you covered with smart banks for the exams you will encounter along your journey. But this is not only for physicians. PAs and MPs can prepare for their exams using TrueLearn as well. They can even help nurses prepare for the NCLEX. Click the link in the show notes for a discount by using the code EDDIEJOEMP. MD-25. Crush your upcoming exams by using TrueLearn. Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. For historical context, today is the 28th of January of 2023, and the article I'm going to be discussing was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I believe it was on the 21st of this month. Yep, it was the 21st of this month, and it has to do with the amount of IV fluids that we give patients in resuscitation. Unfortunately, this article is not free for you to download. But most people have a way to access the New England Journal of Medicine, where this is published, by using a local library or by asking a friend. But I feel that this article is quite important, although at the end of the day, well, let me not spoil it for you. The reason why it's important is because the first thing most clinicians do when a patient is hypotensive is provide them with IV fluids. The Surviving Sepsis Guidelines recommend 30 cc's per kilogram in patients who are in septic shock or who are hypotensive with a lactate of greater than 4. It often bears reminding that the whole objective of providing IV fluids to patients is to increase their stroke volume. After all, I always remind people of this equation that the mean arterial pressure is equal to cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance. Some people use CVP, but for the sake of simplicity, I tend to leave that out. To break this down even further, cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. So when a patient is septic, they vasodilate and hence drop their SVR. Normal SVR is 800 to 1200. This drops it less than 800. And it's worth discussing that these fluids we provide patients does not change the SVR. The SVR is improved by treating the inflammatory process, or as some describe the overactive inflammatory process, that is sepsis. One thing that has taken place is that this 30 cc per kilogram recommendation by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has been adopted by CMS. For those who don't know, CMS is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and it has been adopted as a metric to which hospitals are scrutinized and ultimately reimbursed. This could be for the better or for the worse. And I've been working on a post for several months now, examining exactly where this 30 cc per kilogram of IV fluid recommendation came out of. But long story short, it seems to be kind of arbitrary, as if as if it came out of thin air. Because believe it or not, there's no systematic uh, randomized control trial that was performed with different volumes of IV IV fluids, and from there they found that 30 cc per kilogram was the best one. Now. That being said, I have always been a huge proponent of individualized medicine because we treat individual human beings, not groups of people, we don't treat metrics, and we certainly do not treat guidelines. So I was excited to hear initially about two trials that I, to be honest, incorrectly believed would be potentially pushing back on the 30cc per kilogram guideline. And these two trials were the classic trial trial and now the Clover's trial, which I'm going to be discussing today. Unfortunately, the classic trial still gave patients a significant amount of IV fluids in the emergency department prior to enrollment in the ICU. Also, these patients got a lot of fluids in the wards. Many of these patients were patients who came out of the hospital wards or the operating room. But overall, it was more a trial looking at IV fluids provided in the ICU. Long story short, in that particular trial, there were no differences in outcomes. Now, for this particular podcast, I'm going to go ahead and read the Clovers trial, which again was published just a week ago on January 21st, and kind of report my findings and thoughts on the study in real time. As always, I definitely recommend you read this article for yourself and don't trust me as this is my breakdown on the paper, and ultimately, this is not medical advice. The purpose of this paper was to sort out if a restrictive fluid strategy for sepsis-related hypotension would lead to lower mortality than a liberal fluid strategy. Right off the bat, I want to know how they define restrictive and liberal fluid strategies, as well as when in the course of resuscitation did enrollment begin. But let me just hold my horses here. Reading the introduction to any paper is always worth one's time as they give a good backdrop as to why the authors are conducting this trial and they also give you citations to the I guess you would say the backbone trials that have led to where we are today with regard to these data. The next part of this particular paper are the methods and here they specify that this is a multi-center randomized unblinded superiority trial. This is also a trial conducted by the PETAL network P-E-T-A-L. And I've worked with this group before. They conduct fantastic work with the research. So right off the bat, I feel that this will be a well-conducted trial. It's also published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which the majority of the time they publish good stuff. Sometimes they don't, but here we are. Next up is the patient population. They enrolled patients who were over 18 years old. These patients needed to be septic with either a suspected or confirmed infection. If the systolic blood pressure was less than 100 after a liter of fluid, they were deemed to be eligible to carry on in this trial. I kind of wish that they would have used mean arterial pressure because of the limitations of oscillometric devices, and this is something that I've discussed in the past, but I'll let that be. But they had some exclusion criteria, but one of those that caught my eye was that patients who received more than 3 liters of IV fluids um, including that provided by the EMS teams, well, those patients were not enrolled into these trials. The trial procedures and figure one get into the explanation of what was the restrictive and liberal fluid protocols and what these protocols actually look like. For both groups, however, it is important to note that the patients received between one to three liters of fluid before enrollment. Data from the promise, PROCESS, and ARISE trials from 2014 to f- 2015 showed that patients received a mean of 2.2, 2.8, and 2.5 liters in the first six hours respectively. Therefore, the question here isn't going to answer the 30 cc's per kilogram of fluid. You know, that question I had of, is it really worth it? It's not going to answer it here, much to my disappointment. As I am writing this podcast, or better yet, reading this podcast, I'm also reading the paper simultaneously. And I saw that they used a systolic blood pressure of less than 100 or a mean arterial pressure of less than 65 to define hypotension. So I'm glad that map came out to play as that's what I used in my practice. Also, both of these protocols took place for a total of 24 hours. Getting into the restrictive protocols, if a patient received less than two liters of fluid, they received an additional amount of fluids in order to achieve two liters. At least that's how I understand it to be. If the patient is still hypotensive, as defined by a MAP less than 65 or systolic blood pressure less than 90, they were started on norepinephrine. That was their primary vasopressor. If the patients were still hypotensive after this, they received the second vasopressor, which tended to be epinephrine more than anything else. Patients in the restrictive group received additional fluids if they were severely hypotensive. If their hypotension was refractory to vasopressors, If their lactate was elevated at greater than 4 after 2 hours, if they had sinus tachycardia with a heart rate greater than 130, or if by the echocardiogram and uh, point-of-care ultrasound they looked like they were dry by assessing the IVC, checking a delta stroke volume, or left ventricular and diastolic index on echo. In these cases, an additional 500 cc's of fluid boluses were provided. Moving on to the liberal fluid group, at the beginning of the protocol, these patients received 2 liters in addition to the 1 to 3 liters they received prior. So we're starting off already with 3 to 5 liters in these patients of fluids. These patients received additional 500 cc boluses if they remained either hypotensive, their lactate remained above 4, their urine output was less than 30 cc per hour, they were tachycardic above 110, or if they were started on vasopressors. I noted that they weren't using any dynamic hemodynamic parameters like stroke volume assessments, which they did use in the restrictive group. These patients received additional 500 cc boluses, and they were only started on vasopressors only if these patients were severely hypotensive, their lactate was greater than 4 and increasing over 2 hours, if they received more than 5 liters total, or if they seemed to be fluid overloaded. A key point here is that If they received more than 5 liters, they stopped administering fluids per the protocol. I feel that a practice that takes place at a majority of institutions is to give more than 5 liters of fluids at times to avoid transferring the patient to the ICU and placing the patient on vasopressors. Now that we have gone through the protocols, let's go ahead and take a look at the results. Over the course of four years, they enrolled 1,563 patients at 60 different hospitals. A little over seven hundred and eighty patients in each group. Spoiler alert, they wanted to go ahead and enroll more patients, but they stopped the trial early for futility. When some people heard about this, they went ahead and right off the bat brushed off the rest of the trial stating that there's no difference, but I'd like to state that there's still several things that we could learn from their efforts. Table one describes the baseline characteristics of the patients. There's nothing outside of the ordinary here in my opinion. But on second thought, The fact that the average age was less than 60 makes me think that this patient population is rather young. They did a fantastic job of randomizing patients early with a median time of approximately one hour. This is fantastic work. It's really hard to enroll patients. The median volume of fluid that the patients received before randomization was approximately 2 liters. Looking at the differences in the fluids that the patients received, it is noted that the restrictive group received a median of 500 milliliters versus 2.3 liters. In the liberal fluid group. During the 24 hours after randomization, it was noted that the restrictive fluid group received approximately 1.3 versus 3.4 in the liberal fluid group. This is a difference of a little over 2 liters. Patients with restrictive fluid received far more vasopressors versus the liberal fluid group at 59% versus 37% respectively. I can't say that I am surprised by this because, you know, part of the point was to start these patients on vasopressors a little bit earlier. The restrictive fluid group also had a longer duration of vasopressors in the first 24 hours at 9.6 hours versus 5.4 hours in the liberal fluid group. Some might say that giving fewer fluids leads to a longer time on vasopressors based on that table, However, this is just describing the first 24 hours. I have to kind of remind people to look at the details. We have to read further into the study to see if this carries on to lead to a longer length of stay in the ICU for these patients. Amongst the efficacy outcomes, the primary outcome was death before discharge, home by day 90. Here, there was no difference with 14% in the restricted fluid group and 149 in the liberal fluid group. What caught my eye about these results is not that there was no difference, but it was the fact that less than 15% of these patients with sepsis and hypotension, so in other words septic shock, passed away. The reason why I think that this is impressive is because generally speaking, mortality from sepsis lingers between 20 to 25 with some data going up to 30% mortality. I hope that this means that we're getting better at taking care of septic patients in this trial that took place at over 60, well, not over, but at 60 different centers. The authors had a long list of secondary outcomes, which none showed any difference whatsoever. It was interesting to see that there was no difference in the need for renal replacement therapy, aka dialysis between the two groups. There was also no difference in the days of vasopressor use in the two groups. It was also interesting to see that the liberal fluid group did not have more ARDS than the restrictive fluid group. There was also no difference in the patients who required intubation and mechanical ventilation. Overall, there was no significant adverse events which took place, which of all the adverse events, there was only 40 out of the over 1,500 patients enrolled in the study, none of which, by the way, were uh, dusky fingers or toes nor gut ischemia. Norepinephrine was the primary vasopressor that was used in the study, and the vast majority of these patients had peripheral vasopressors. Thankfully, they only had three instances of extravasation, but thankfully, all three resolved without any complications nor residual clinical consequences per the authors. The authors also performed a very thorough subgroup analysis of which nothing statistically significant was noted between the two groups. There is a marked trend that patients who have end-stage renal disease should receive restrictive fluids. However, this is not statistically significant. I always remind people that trends really don't mean anything. But I am ultimately curious that if they completed the study, then might there have been an appropriately powered subgroup and actually find a benefit towards restrictive fluids in patients with end-stage renal disease? One of the key points that were mentioned in the discussion is that they did not enroll patients who were already volume overloaded or who had significant volume depletion at the time of possible enrollment. The authors did something else in this trial, which I already mentioned before, that could benefit our practices in the ICU as well as in the emergency department, and this is the fact that they started over 1,500, over 500, excuse me, patients on peripheral vasopressors. Amongst those 500, as I mentioned earlier. They only had three extravasations and none of them had complications, which is a good thing. In the discussion, the authors acknowledged the fact that they did not use non-invasive hemodynamic devices, IVC assessments, or, echocardiogra- or, or echocardiography to assess for fluid responsiveness. This is honestly the way that I practice in my ICU. I tend to use these things. But when it comes to the trial, the authors state that there are a number of populations that we cannot apply these data for. Ultimately, they did a great job of listing all the limitations that are a byproduct of creating such a study. After all, for those of us who have conducted clinical trials before, we know it's a huge pain in the butt. So where do we go from here? It's easy for me to ask people to conduct certain trials without doing it myself. Yes, this does not give us the answer to the 30 cc per kilogram question, which is what I really wanted to know. It does not answer the question of dynamic resuscitation from time zero versus the typical practice that takes place at most institutions today where they give patients 3 liters of fluid or 4 liters of fluid prior to calling the ICU. I guess that's not a wrong thing to do given that the mortality of these groups were less than 15%. Okay, give me a second. Let me take a look and check out the SOFA scores, which tell us the severity of illness for the patients enrolled in the study. So looking at that a little bit further, the mean SOFA score of both groups at the time of enrollment was 3.4. Going back to the sepsis studies that I mentioned earlier, the promise process and RISE trial, a lot of them used the APACHE score, but the promise trial used um, the SOFA scores, and this was 4.2 and 4.3. But here they had 30% mortality between these two groups looking at different resuscitation strategies. Is that change in the SOFA score enough to account for this huge mortality difference between the two types of trials? I honestly can't say I know. I had an attending who told me that perhaps we're already doing the best we're going to be able to do regarding sepsis mortality and that the sepsis mortality is gonna linger somewhere between the 15 to 25 percent range. I'd honestly like to think that we could do better, but I have to say that he's a far more intelligent man than I will ever be. So to conclude this podcast, I guess you could keep doing what you're doing as you're doing your best to manage septic shock patients because these data certainly do not incline me to change my practice in one way or the other. Perhaps I could honestly be a little bit less judgmental of those physicians and clinicians, APPs and such who give patients three to four liters of fluids before starting vasopressors. Now, I wonder if these authors can conduct a subgroup analysis to replicate the findings of the sensor trial that was published in 2019. In that trial, they found that septic shock patients in whom norepinephrine was started earlier, well, they ended up meeting their hemodynamic endpoints faster with fluid complications. By that, I mean that they were able to achieve faster targeted mean arterial pressure settings. They were able to clear the lactate faster, which you all know I have a hard time with that terminology of clear, clear the lactate. And their urine output was appropriate and faster. Uh, from a complication standpoint, they had less patients with arrhythmias and fewer patients with pulmonary edema. But I don't know. That would be something interesting for the others to do. And you can definitely check out both the citations for this Clover's trial as well as the classic trial, which was the other trial that I was excited about that ended up being a huge disappointment. And the sensor trial that I just mentioned, you could all check that out at the show notes. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast. I wish I could record more episodes, but honestly, time is quite limited with all my other obligations, uh, both family-wise as well as clinically. Not to mention that I've been out on the road quite a bit doing a bunch of speaking engagements. So make sure to check me out on one of those places where I'm going to be traveling. I know that I'm going to be going to the Keys at some point in March and in Charleston, South Carolina in December, if I'm not mistaken. So reach out to me and uh, definitely subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already so you can catch my One Miserable episode every month because I guess that's, that's the rate I'm going at right now. Hope you all have a great day now, guys. Thanks. Bye.